0: Eagles Entertainment With the 10th pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast.
1: Welcome to the Journey of the Draft podcast, presented by LifeBrand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we're going to continue our recap of the 2021 NFL Draft, now looking at a couple of divisions today in the NFC and AFC West, and we start that off with Draft Buzz, where I catch up with Dane Brugler to discuss the LA Chargers, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Denver Broncos, and the Las Vegas Raiders, before we transition to the NFC and discuss the Arizona Cardinals, San Francisco 49ers, and the Seattle Seahawks. So remember, the main goal of these talks is not necessarily to give out draft grades and who won the draft, who lost the draft, it's more about discussing the whys, the team-building philosophy of all of these franchises, and uh, get into the, the nuts and bolts of why they made some of these picks, and really just kind of put our final thoughts on this 2021 NFL Draft, and we will continue that conversation with that last NFC West team, the LA Rams, in our Blueprint segment, where I catch up with Sosa Cremengus, the host of the Locked On Rams podcast, to talk about the Rams and their unique approach to the draft this year, and what that process resulted in with this 2021 class. We'll cover that with Sosa before we wrap the show up with our Draft mailbag. Where we'll touch on one good question there um, from you guys here at home. As always, rate, review, subscribe. If you're a fan of these teams, and uh, you know, in the, if it's your first time listening to this show. I promise this is not an Eagles only podcast. We cover all 32 teams all year round. We discuss prospects, team fits, team building philosophies, just like we are today, and we do it throughout the calendar year. So be sure to head on over to the Journey to the Draft podcast, hit subscribe, and stay with us here as we go all the way up to 2022. That being said, let's get this show rolling. We're going to kick things off with Dane in Draft Buzz.
0: Now it's time for Draft Buzz.
1: All right, excited to dig into the AFC West here to start things off with my buddy Dane Brugler. And Dane, Uh, let's jump into the Denver Broncos and we'll kind of run through their picks as we've done over the last couple of weeks, uh, and then we'll uh, go through some superlatives here. Day one, the Denver Broncos come away with Patrick Sertan in the top ten, the corner from Alabama. Day two, three selections here: North Carolina running back Javante Williams. Wisconsin Whitewater offensive lineman Quinn Miners and Ohio State linebacker Baron Browning. And then on day three, a handful of selections here, Caden Stearns, the safety from Texas, Jamar Johnson, the safety from Indiana, Auburn wide receiver Seth Williams, cornerback Kerry Vincent, the speedster from LSU, Jonathan Cooper, the pass rusher from Ohio State, and Marquis Spencer, the defensive lineman from Mississippi State. So uh, let's go back to the Patrick Sertan selection here, Dan. In your mind, why was he the pick? There was a lot of buzz about Quarterback. There was buzz about Micah Parsons. In the end, why do you think that they went uh with Patrick Sertan?
2: George Payton, he's been waiting his turn to be a general manager. He finally gets his chance to run his first draft. And I think he wanted to hit a home run. Uh, not only draft a player with a high floor, but also a high ceiling. And, and Sertan was that guy. Plenty of questions at quarterback. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think that this was a situation where uh, you know, they are absolutely all in on the players they already have on the roster. I just they weren't blown away by Justin Fields or Mac Jones. Um, so you know, you look at Patrick Sertan, immediate NFL starter. Uh, I think there are Pro Bowls in his future, length, athleticism. He's a player who trusts his technique, natural feel for route development. And the game just seems to slow down for him much more than most young corners. Uh, And now it's a little surprising when you factor in, they added Kyle Fuller, uh, Ronald Darby and free agency. But I think adding Sertan just really elevates that entire defense and gives Vic Fangio uh, just another option uh, that that he can have some fun with out there.
1: And I think with, with Fuller keep in mind, obviously it was only a one year deal. Um, You know, they've got uh, another corner there whose name is escaping me at the moment. Um, uh, I have her right here. Oh, A.J. Bouye, uh, they released this offseason. Uh, Ronald Darby, they added, but he's a, that was a, like a two- or three-year deal. Um, you can look at even to next year. They've got a lot of corners coming off uh, of the books. So, um, you know, while it may not have been a need necessarily for 2021, uh, certainly they've, they've got the room to be able to add a, a young stud at the position uh, for years to come. I do think it's interesting. Uh, you know, we talked with Cecil Lamy here on the show uh, a few weeks before the draft, and he said that things were a little bit more tight-lipped than normal uh, around the Denver Broncos and their selection since George Baton had took, uh, had taken over. And I think with all the buzz about quarterback, the buzz about linebacker, they had the ability to add Mac Jones. They had the ability to add Justin Fields. As you mentioned, Parsons was there on the board Um, and who knows how highly they had those guys. It's not, it's not like they may have not, you know, it's not like necessarily that they hated those players. Clearly they valued Sertan, um, but just keep that in mind. If the Broncos are picking in the, Top 12, top 15 next year. Um, uh, some of the, the stuff that's you know put out there about them. Well, it could be a little smokescreen, smoke screen action there. Uh just something to keep in mind. Um uh, let's go into a, a position here. Surprise impact. Who could shock us with the impact they have in year one? And for me, uh, this player would be safety Caden Stearns on day three. And, and this is a guy, look, um, you know, you look at that safety room. They clearly, and they made it a point to try and redo this entire secondary going into the offseason. I look at Caden Stearns, the way that he plays the game, it's kind of modeled after the way that Vic Fangio wants to be able to play. He's an instinctive player. He's a methodical player. He can come down and he can finish as a tackler one-on-one. He runs the alley very well. He's not a guy that you're going to put in the slot and play man-to-man. That's fine. That's not the way uh, Vic Fangio is going to utilize his safety. So uh, I think when you look at him, you look at Jamar Johnson, who they added uh, on day three as well, the safety from Indiana. I think they have they have f- some similarities in, the- in terms of the way um, you know that they can make an impact for this defense. So to me, I look at Caden Stearns, who they selected in the fourth round, and say that this is a guy that can come in and have have a year one impact.
2: Yeah, you make a great point about the fit because you add him to that Vic Fangio defense, uh, and you know a lot of a lot of ability and freedom to play high to low, and that's what Caden Stearns can do. Now, I, I do have major concerns about his conservative conservative play style. Uh, you know, tendency to rub some the wrong way, which was a common theme in Austin, according to many I talked to at the Texas program. But there's no doubt about the athleticism, uh, you know, and that translates to the NFL. So if he stops reading his press clippings, focusing on just playing it safe, uh, we could see his playing time really increase throughout his rookie year, uh, which will allow him to make an impact.
1: And obviously, look, there are some guys on that team. Javante Williams, I expect to make a year one impact Quinn Miners expect. Uh, Patrick Sertan, but this would be the guy that I think would surprise us with his ability in year one. When we look at those day three picks, Dane, is there a guy that you feel has the highest ceiling of
2: all those fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round selections that I listed earlier? Yeah, and, and one other name. I mean, and you mentioned Quinn Miners, and I think that he would he would have been my choice for the surprise impact, just because you look at who's in front of the depth chart. Yeah, you know, they drafted Lloyd Cushenberry uh, in the, what third round last year. Yep. Uh, Dalton Reisner, Graham Glasno are slated uh, to start a guard. So, you know, in theory, the Broncos are set on the interior offensive line. So if we see Quinn Miners play, it's either because of an injury or something else happened. Uh, so I think there would be a That's little valid. bit of a surprise there if we see Miner, uh, but mostly just because of his path uh, to get on the field. So, uh, But in terms of day three, uh, you know, talk about ceiling and guys that have the potential to maybe outplay where they were drafted. You mentioned him, Jamar Johnson, uh, who was drafted uh, shortly after Caden Stearns. Does he need to be better as a run defender? Yeah, no question, yep. uh, especially if he wants to stay on the field at the pro level. But the ceiling is high because he can get his hands on the football uh, range, instincts uh, in the back half. I, I think that he has a chance to really flourish with Fangio and that split safety look, Play, make plays from the post. Uh, You know, Justin Simmons, Kareem Jackson, those are your starters at safety. So a guy like Jamar Johnson, he can be a sponge in that defensive backs room. Uh, I, I just I really thought he was a steal in the fifth round. I was talking
1: to a buddy of mine, and he thought that, you know, I wonder how much of Eddie Jackson uh, Vic Fangio sees in Jamar Johnson. The the thing I would say, look, Eddie Jackson was a former corner that made the move to safety late. Uh, Jamar Johnson, not exactly the the best tackler, as you mentioned. And I I look at Fangio, the way that they play defense, those safeties have to be able to tackle in that quarter scheme, in that split safety look. Um, He does need to get better there. That's the thing with Eddie Jackson. Eddie Jackson was, was a pretty good tackler as a corner uh, and showed the ability to run the alley as a safety as well. So I do want to see uh, Johnson come through, but his ceiling is very, very high, very productive on the football. When you look at the Broncos overall, Dane, um, you know, obviously, look, they they placed a big priority on revamping that entire secondary, all the bodies they added at corner, at safety. Um, they were not afraid to double dip, and I think that that's really interesting uh, to look for here moving into next offseason is, okay, when you're looking at the Broncos, yeah, keep an eye on what they do in free agency, but don't think that that necessarily shuts the door on a specific position in the draft. I think that's something to keep in mind when we talk about this Broncos team a year from now.
2: Yeah. in my observations, I think they really echo kind of what you just said. You know, I don't think they went into the draft saying, okay, we're, we're going to target two safeties here. But they just stuck to their board and Stearns, Jamar Johnson, just just how it played out. And I think that says something about George Payton and, you know, like like you're saying, moving forward uh, as we try to project what they're going to do next year and the the following years. Um, You know, the quarterback element to this is really interesting because I think it, it was less about having a ton of confidence in Drew Locke, in Teddy Bridgewater and more about just the right quarterback was not there at number nine. Uh, And so, you know that that's something to watch moving forward. And then also with Javante Williams, uh, you know, moving up to get him. In the last nine seasons, the Broncos have had seven different players lead the team in rushing, So it's been a revolving door at running back. They let Philip Lindsay walk Royce Freeman. He's not guaranteed a roster spot. Uh, Melvin Gordon's, you know, more than likely on the decline. They traded it up for Javante Williams with the hopes that he can stop that revolving door and yep. really help bring some stability uh, to the offense. And so before they, you know, make a move to get the right quarterback, they really made some important moves to kind of help the overall balance of the offense. Let's get to our, our next team here
1: in the Las Vegas Raiders, led by John Gruden and Mike Mayock. We'll run through the selections here. Round one, they go Alabama left tackle Alex Leatherwood. Day two, TCU safety Trevon Merrig, Buffalo pass rusher Malcolm Kuntz, and Virginia Tech safety Divine Diablo. On day three, three picks here, Tyree Gillespie, the safety from Missouri, Illinois corner Nate Hobbs, and Pitt center Jimmy Morrissey. So uh, let's bring it back to Alex Leatherwood here, Dan. Why do you feel like he was the selection? Obviously, there's been a lot written, a lot talked about, about this pick uh but ultimately what led them to making Leatherwood the selection there uh, in the top 25 of this draft.
2: Uh, going into the draft, we knew right tackle was a major hole on the roster, something they would have to address in the draft. We talked about Christian Darrisaw, Tevin yeah. Jenkins, a few other options as being maybe possibilities there at 17, not even possibilities but maybe even the favorite uh to be that 17th pick, but huh the Raiders obviously had a big grade on Leatherwood uh, to take him top 20. And honestly, if the Raiders don't take him there, there's no guarantee that Leatherwood's a first round pick. Uh, But, you know, it just, it matches what John Gruden and Mike Mayock have done in the past. They target solid players from big time programs. And this very much feels like, you know, Cleveland Farrell, a few, uh, you know, a few years ago. Now they didn't take Leatherwood in the top five, like Farrell. So I don't think it was as big of a reach, but still a little surprised to see him go uh, you know, this high in the draft. I'm not, I'm not sure many people were expecting that.
1: And I think when you look at just their first round picks since 2019, you know, and all you say, oh, it's only three years, but they've had a lot of first round picks because they of that clean back trade. Yeah. So uh they've had six first round picks in those three drafts. And I think when you look at those selections outside of Damon Arnett, who you know, there were there were rumors or reports about um just the, the off field there. But I think when you look at Farrell, you look at Josh Jacobs, you look at Jonathan Abram, uh, Henry Ruggs, and certainly add Leatherwood and Farrell uh, into that group as well. All those guys were intangible players from big schools, like you mentioned. And I, and I think that that certainly uh, is, a, is a resounding theme from the first round selections there uh, with Gruden and Mayock at the helm. So uh, let's now get into the, the next superlative here. and We'll go into the best fit. Which guy has the best path? To early success uh, due to the fit. And to me, I'm going to go to round two, and I'm going to talk about Trevon Merrick. And when you look at uh, the new defensive scheme, you have Gus Bradley there uh, as the new defensive coordinator there for the Raiders. And when you look around their roster and their the, their depth chart, you say, okay, where what are the holes in that scheme? What are the ones where they're where they're missing a player? They were missing that deep safety. They were missing that guy that can patrol, play the center field, uh, and play down to you know over the top of the defense. And Merrick has that skill set. He played in a quarter scheme down at TCU, uh, but he's got the skill set to be able to be a center fielder, play with range, uh, you know, and play top down. I think when you look at Merrick, the fit makes perfect sense. And I think that they got good value there
2: in the middle of round two. I agree. And doing a lot of Raiders media pre-draft, I remember answering a lot of questions about, okay, Merrick at 17. uh, You know, was that – a possibility, but that makes sense. It was at a reach, and you know, it, it felt like a reach, no question. I thought there was a good chance we weren't going to see any safeties drafted first round. Uh, but there was no guarantees that he'd be there for the Raiders in the second round. But you know, credit to the Raiders, they were able to get him in the second. Um, and when you think about just the the holes going into uh the holes on the roster going into the into the, the draft, right tackle and free safety. Uh, arguably the, the two biggest holes on the roster. Yeah. And they were able to answer those with the first two uh two picks, especially when you consider Gus Bradley's scheme and, and what free safety means to what they want to do. Uh you know, that that role, how important that is. So now the question is, how early is Merrick going to have an impact uh, yeah. that we've seen the previous safeties from that scheme have. The Raiders, they've struggled to put pressure on the quarterback. Uh, and that really stresses the back end of the defense to cover longer and make plays. And so it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, you, you mentioned how it's going to be a little bit of a transition, uh, you know, to what he was asked to do in college, to what he's asked to do in this scheme at the Raiders. Uh, so, you know, what, what, do they put on his plate from day one? And then how does he progress, uh, from early in the season, the mid season, the late in the season, uh, that'll be something to watch as, as we watch the Raiders season play out.
1: When you look at those three day, three selections, Gillespie, Hobbs, Marcy, which of the three do you feel like makes the biggest impact overall over the course of their career?
2: You know, I, I don't, I don't know that any of the three really jump out as, uh, that's definitely the answer, but I think when you look at Tyree Gillespie, I think he's going to make an immediate impact on special teams. And yep. then when you consider, you look at the Raiders, um, you know, safeties with Jonathan Abrams and Carl Joseph, if history tells us anything, those guys aren't playing 16 games. Uh, so Gillespie's going to get his chance at some point this year to see defensive reps. Uh, he's a hard header. He plays with range. He doesn't make a ton of plays on the football. And that was my biggest hangup with him. I liked Gillespie a lot. Uh, and I think at some point, between the senior bowl and, you know, the pro days, you know, public perception of Gillespie kind of went past what I thought. And you know, I thought I was high on Gillespie. And then as more people watched him, he kind of, you know, it went even higher than, than what I was willing to go. Right. But I still liked the player. I thought he, he was good. I, I think that if he's able to get on the field, uh, you know he can have a make an impact uh, pretty quickly, uh, maybe this season for uh, for the Raiders. And
1: I think he just offers a nice fail safe in case a either Merrick doesn't hold up, or if you like you said, like uh, if any of those other veteran safeties that are already there, I think Merrick has that flexibility to come down and play as a strong safety in that scheme. Gillespie right. plugs in perfectly as a free safety, so you double dip at that free safety spot with Merrick and Gillespie on day two and three. But I think Merrick's versatility allows gillespie to even you know have a chance to be able to participate on defense if there's an injury elsewhere so uh i would agree with you i think gillespie has the highest upside uh of that trio on day three although i do like uh nate hobbs and marcy i think both guys are, are really scrappy players that have make it you know make it potential uh mm-hmm. in the nfl um going over the top we talked about the name brand schools anything else when you look at this class uh for the raiders that uh, kind of stands out for the you know big picture
2: yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, we kind of mentioned it. They're predictable, but they're very unpredictable. You know, they're predictable because right. history tells us right. uh, the big time programs. The last three years, they've had six first round picks. Alabama, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Mississippi State. Those are the six schools they've drafted from. Um were, you know, really what, just four schools uh, with Alabama three times. So, um, but I think they're unpredictable because they're not afraid to draft players that maybe are a little earlier than the media or other teams, or just the general public believe you know where they should be drafted. Each of the last three years, they've done that. No one was talking about Cleveland Farrell as a top five pick. Yep. That did not scare the Raiders at all. I believe that that was Mike Mayock's first it ever was, draft it was his pick, first pick. Yep. general manager. Yep, uh, Damon Arnett was not talked about as a top twenty pick. Uh, you know, but the Raiders were okay with that. Leatherwood still, and it's not that these guys aren't good players. They are Leatherwood, a very good player. But, you know, just in talks with other teams and, you know, not once did his name really come up as a possible top 20 guy. Some thought maybe first round, but not that early. So on one hand, you have to respect the courage to stick to your board and take your guy, but you better hit. Uh, In the Raiders, so far, I would say they probably have a losing record when it comes to, you know, their first round picks the last three years. Obviously, plenty of time for that to change, but where things are right now, it hasn't quite worked out, uh, you know, sticking to their guns and taking their guy.
1: Well, let's go to the uh, LA Chargers now. And really, an interesting class. We'll go through their picks here. Day one, Ray Slater, the offensive lineman from Northwestern. Day two, you've got Florida State corner, Asante Samuel Jr., Tennessee wide receiver, Josh Palmer, and Georgia tight end, Trey McKitty. And then on day three, you've got Duke pass rusher, Chris Rumpf, Nebraska offensive lineman, Brandon Hymas, Iowa linebacker, Nick Neiman running back Larry Roundtree from Missouri, and then Georgia safety, the Philly kid, Mark Webb. So uh, let's bring it back to Rashon Slater here, Dan. Uh, in your mind, uh, why was he the pick? I, obviously a huge need uh, along the offensive line there as they're trying to protect, build a wall around Justin Herbert. But uh, Rashon
2: Slater, an interesting selection there for the Chargers. Sometimes as a general manager, you need to get lucky and hope the right player falls past yeah. a few landmines. And that's what happened with Slater and the Chargers. Credit to Tom Telesco. Uh, Surely he felt tempted to trade up and and secure the tackle position. Uh, Instead, stays put at 13, hopes Slater would fall, which he did. Um, Now, some teams, uh, they, they scouted Slater as a guard or a center, Chargers were not one of those teams. They have said he is their tackle and likely their starting left tackle in the season opener. So they have really uh, torn down that offensive line, rebuilt it. It was a priority for them this offseason. And that's they were able to do that uh, through free agency, through the draft. And I think when we fast forward to week one, there's a good chance that only right tackle Brian Balaga. He's the only remaining starter uh, on that starting offensive line for the Chargers from a year ago. And that's a good thing if you're Justin Herbert.
1: I think when you look at Telesco in the past, like they've been able to hold their ground, not get too antsy uh, and be able to get their guy, you know, the, looked there was not a foregone conclusion that justin herbert was going to be there sure. for them a year ago uh derwin james another guy like you know let the board come to you and they they get him uh in the middle of round one jerry Tillery uh, where they got him at the end of the first round uh you know the only first round pick he's traded up for was kenneth murray when they made him their second first round pick a year ago uh, when they traded up from the back of day two so uh i think when you look at his strategy over the course of his career uh certainly uh that has shown up time and time again uh, i'm very interested to see how slater works out um you know at the left tackle spot but certainly a big role uh, protecting the blind side of Justin Herbert. Let's go now to our, our next superlative here. And let's talk about competition edition, a player that enters a little bit of a crowded room uh, where he's going to have to compete to be able to see that early playing time. Who's a guy that fits
2: that mold for you? I think it's Josh Palmer at receiver, you know, Keenan Allen, obviously he's entrenched as the team's number one. Mike Williams hasn't exactly lived up to being a top 10 pick, but it would not surprise me at all if he sets career best this season, especially now that he's in the final year of his rookie deal. Right. Um, you know, we've seen players like Jalen Guyton or Tyron Johnson, they've been productive when given opportunities. And then KJ Hill, Joe Reed, they were both drafted last year, and so they've got a full season head start on Palmer when it comes to uh just getting acclimated to the NFL and the Chargers playbook. So uh, you know, Palmer, he has the talent to create movement on that depth chart. And, you know, I think he can play inside, can play outside his toughness to work the middle of the field will help him, uh, his ability to win vertically. Uh, I think that helps as well, but it's just a crowded group right now. And so, you know, that's, it's going to be a lot of competition to see not only makes who makes the roster, but you know, what's, uh, you know, what's the pecking order in terms of getting on the on the field.
1: Palmer went right around this to the area of the draft where I felt he would go like end of day two. He was everybody's favorite sleeper at wide receiver. Everybody talked to uh, before the draft was like, Oh, like you like these top guys, but keep an eye on Josh Palmer, keep an eye on Josh Palmer. So uh, it just seemed to me like foregone conclusion. He was going to go off the board uh, somewhere in the third round. And that's exactly where he ended up going. The next pick here, talking about value and placement on the draft board. I wanted to talk about who the best value pick was. And as I go through this group of selections, I kind of had I have trouble because I felt like, oh, this is right where I felt like this guy would be slotted, right around where I felt this guy would be slotted. The guy I ended up set, settling in with was Brendan Hymas, the tackle um, from Northwest, or from uh, Nebraska, rather. And I think when you watch him over the course of his career, you know, we all made a big deal about Rashawn Slater and his matchup uh, with Chase Young. I thought Hymas really held his own watching him against Chase Young in 2019. And I think when you watch him against some of the best competitions, some of the best pass rushers on the, the schedule for Nebraska over the last couple of years, uh, this guy's h- held up pretty well. He's got some position versatility i think he can play inside and outside um uh, i like that value there in the middle of day three I, that's a valuable addition to your roster when you get into round five round six so uh, i really like that pick for them uh in the third round or on the third day of the draft
2: i agree yeah he's somewhat of an acquired taste because there's nothing really special about his game yeah, that, that blows you away you sit down and you watch him solid size solid movements uh solid length solid play strength But the more you get into his tape and you realize, okay, this guy hasn't lost a rep uh, in a while. And, you know, he's frequently right place, right time. Um, I I think that he can give you uh, time at guard, like you said. He can be a swing tackle. So to get a guy like that in the fifth round, love that value. So I I agree 100%.
1: So to me, when I look over the top here at this Chargers team and the draft class overall, I would say just I'm most excited just to see how all these pieces fit. For Brandon Staley, because I think when you look at him with the Rams last year, to a T, I mean they they built that system around Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. This is what the these are what these two guys, these blue chip talents, do best. Let's put them in position to do those things well. Um, so, because you know, every coach talks about that, hey, you know we want we want to put our guys in position to succeed. We want to tailor the scheme to our player strengths. But not every coach talks the, or walks that walk. So to me, I, seeing that Brandon Staley has done that as a coordinator. Now looking, okay, how is he going to do that now as the head coach? with the chargers. We know some of the blue chip talent they already have on defense. So um, just seeing some of the specialized players, you know, how would they use Asante Samuel jr. This is a guy that, you know, he's got an early path to playing time, significant playing time with that chargers defense, Chris Rump. We, we you kind of view him as like a specialty pass rusher. That's how he, how he was with Duke. He went to a scheme with a system where, yeah, that's, that's kind of, you could project that's kind of how he's going to be used. And I just can't wait to see how some of these pieces kind of fit in the overall picture. Uh, when you look at the chargers, whether it's this class or just the offseason overall, uh, uh, just any, any big takeaways for you?
2: Yeah, and, and I agree with you because they their first six picks this year, only two were on defense. But I think both of them are really intriguing with Staley, with uh, Asante Samuel Jr. and, and Chris Ron So I, I, I think that's a great point. And just going back to that Slater pick, I, I think it highlights just how important it is. And we, we touched on this a little bit. Uh, but just how, you know, for a general manager to understand when to trade up, when to be patient, And the last few years, we've seen Telesco be really – just do a really nice job at reading the board, uh, landing Herbert, landing Slater. Obviously, like I said, there's some luck involved there because you can't control what other teams are going to do. But if you take the temperature of the room and really understand, okay – our best odds for this are to do X, Y, Z, then, you know, you're ready for any scenario. You put your position, your team in position to get the right players. It's just not something we talk about enough when it comes to being a general manager and, you know, orchestrating uh, what to do during the draft. I think, you know, a lot of us, Would love to play general manager. And a lot of us would probably panic at times when, oh, you know, our guy's going to be off the board. Let's go get it, you know, and to have the patience, to have the foresight, to understand what's going on. I, I think just, you know, a lot of credit to Tom Telesco for the way he's operated, especially the last two years.
1: Let's go now to so the uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, our last team here in the AFC West. I'll run through the picks. No day one selection after the trade for Orlando Brown from the Ravens. So their first pick comes on the second round, day two. They take Missouri linebacker Nick Bolton. They follow that up with Oklahoma center Creed Humphrey to round out the second day of the draft. And then four guys on day three, Florida State defensive end Josh Kando, Duke tight end Noah Gray, Clemson wide receiver Cornell Powell, and Tennessee guard. Trey Smith. So let's talk uh, about that pick. And we'll go to, to Nick Bolton here, the linebacker from Missouri, who they selected in the second round. Dane, when you look at Bolton fitting there with Kansas city, why do you feel like he was the selection?
2: I think he's too good to pass up at number yeah. 58 overall, you know, and Anthony Hitchens, he's going to be a starter this year. Willie Gay should see more snaps uh, in year two for the chiefs. But, Bolton has a talent to be the quarterback of the defense, uh, even if it might not happen right away, uh, just because of the, the path to get on the field. But, you know, it's funny because throughout the process, I feel like uh, there were some respected mock drafts out there or, you know, mock drafts from respected analysts that had Bolton to the Chiefs in round one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were able to get him a full round later. So I, I think they have to feel pretty good about the value that was there.
1: To me, I just let you look at the the way that they want to play defense. And this is a pressure scheme, right? That's what we know that uh Steve Spagnuolo, they're going to turn the heat up on opposing offenses. They know that they can be risk-reward because you've got Patrick Mahomes on the other side, right? So they love to turn up the heat. Bolton, not necessarily a coverage player, but he could be used as a blitzer. He And I feel like in, in that scheme, he can be a three-down player. Uh, I'm excited to see what he looks like for that defensive system. Uh, Let's now go to the the next category here. Surprise impact. Who's a guy who could shock us with the impact they have in year one. Uh, I'll go to you for this one. When you look at their, their selections, who's a guy that could surprise us uh, with his performance as a rookie.
2: And I'm going to go with Creed Humphrey here. And it's similar to the Quinn miners uh, conversation because, you know, he's Creed Humphrey's a good player. It's not going to shock anybody if he comes in and plays well as a rookie. But I think when you look at, okay, what the Chiefs has done on the interior of that offensive line, Joe Tooney coming in as a left guard, Uh the Chiefs signed Austin Blythe to be a one-year uh, starting center in 2021. Uh They've got Kyle Long that they brought in uh, at right guard. Uh Loren Duvernay-Tardif is coming back. Uh, he'll compete at right guard as well. So for Creed Humphrey, there's not a clear path to get on the field, just like Quinn Miner, same, same type of deal. Uh, So I think that as a rookie, he's going to give you that interior line insurance, but he's just, he's too good to keep on the sideline. So at some point he's going to get on the field. And once he does, he might not give that job back. So, you know, uh, again, saying he's going to make an impact as a rookie, not really a surprise because the talent, the ability the surprise part comes with the interior line depth and they're just not being that clear path. So it's really, uh, you know, funny how this glaring weakness has been transformed into the strength for the chiefs.
1: Honestly. And I I don't want to get too, I guess I'll get ahead of myself. My, my over the top thought on the Kansas city chiefs was just how they turned uh, what was a weakness for them in the super bowl into a huge, huge strength of the football team on the offensive line with what they've done in free agency, they go get Joe Tooney. They start bringing guys back. They go in the trademark. They get Orlando Brown. Then you go into this draft. You take Creed Humphrey, who was one of the best centers in the in the class, and then you get Trey Smith, who was going to be my day three highest ceiling player. Uh, you get him late in the draft. Well, your final pick. Both those guys, Humphrey and Trey Smith, if you would ask people a year ago, you'd say, yeah, they're probably first round picks in 2021 or in 2021. Uh, Neither guy ends up in round one, but the talent is still there. And I know Smith was a little bit up and down this past season as a senior, uh, but this is a guy who, at his best, is an absolute people mover. He's a smart kid. He's a great kid. Uh, I'm really interested to see ultimately w- what his career projection is moving forward. To me, he had the highest ceiling of all of those day three selections. And I, and I really, you know, I think Kendo. he's got some tools in his body that you can really mold. I like Cornell Powell, the player, uh, but Trey Smith, uh, to me, this guy has the ability to be great. You just worry about the medical.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that's, uh, you know, we know the talents there. It's just a matter of, OK, can he play under control? Uh, can he stay on the field? It's hard to reconcile. You know, what's that root problem with him? You know, why, why were some of the low points on tape? What was the reasoning? Because on some plays he looks balanced and looks powerful. On others, he looks completely overmatched and, you know, he's making freshman mistakes out there. So Andy Heck, yeah, one of the more respected offensive line coaches in the league. So I'm eager to see what he can do with a talent like Trey Smith.
1: So let's now go over to the Arizona Cardinals and we'll go to the NFC. To me, uh, running looking through their, their, their selections, this was an interesting team for me coming into this draft. Day one, they take Tulsa linebacker Zayvon Collins. You end up on day two with Purdue wide receiver Rondell Moore. And then on day three, Marco Wilson, the talented corner from Florida, uh, Duke pass rusher Victor DiMakije, UCF corner Tay Gowan, safety James Wiggins from Cincinnati, and Penn State center Mike Menett. Uh Let's go back to Zayvon Collins here, Dane. To me one of the big things that stood out to me about when you look back at Steve Kime and you know his uh, his draft history, he can't help but take these like the positionless players on defense. And that is kind of the new wave in the NFL. You're looking for those hybrid talents. But when you look at their draft history, I mean, it is littered with guys that had that kind of moniker Coming out of college, and some have worked really, really well. Um, some either haven't, or the the jury is still out. But uh, put Zayvon Collins next in line. This is a guy that has that really versatile skill set, and he ends up out in the desert with the Cardinals. It is
2: fascinating when really you is. look at the the draft history uh, in the first two rounds, especially drafting guys that might not be that prototypical for whatever position but you know the talents clearly there it's just a matter of okay now it's up to the defensive coordinator to you know put the player in the position to succeed and understanding strengths and so uh you know uh, Steve Kime has had, has shown a lot of confidence in his defensive coordinators to uh you know understand how to use these talents in the right ways even Collins being the, the most recent and you know, it seems like they're ready to kind of give that uh you know that Mike linebacker role to them. Yep. Uh and you know, you're the starter and you know, go out and you know, be the centerpiece of our defense and you know, there'd be a lot on your plate, but we feel confident you can do that. So um, yeah, it's just a really fascinating dynamic with this team and especially this general manager, how uh they're willing to bet on uh talent more so than. Uh, you know, just a, having a clear understanding of, okay, he's, he's this position and that's it. And, you know, he fits what we do. And uh, even going back to Isaiah Simmons last year, you know, and, you know, drafting two hybrid linebackers in the top 20 or top 16 picks back-to-back years, that's, that, that's, you know, you don't see that very often. We we might not see that again for a, a long, long time. So Cardinals are just a very interesting team. Not only is it two in two years, but it's three and five because you go back to
1: Hassan Reddick in 2017. Right. Uh, you know they took him there. Uh, they took Deion Buchanan back in 2014. Uh, so a, a long history. That's just round one. But then you go to round two, and it's like all these guys with the hybrid skill sets. You know whether it's Zach Allen from Buddha Boston Baker. College, Buddha yeah. Baker, uh, the Honey Badger had that kind of uh, had, had that kind of a skill set. I mean, all these guys um, just really versatile playmakers. Uh, that you're just like, all right, well, we don't know what exactly where exactly they're going to fit in. Right now, day one, but we're going to bet on the athleticism. We're going to bet on the upside. Uh, just a really interesting strategy there uh, for the Cardinals. Uh, when you look at the rest of this depth chart, who's a player that enters a crowded room to compete in? And for me, I look at Rondell Moore and I, I look, this is a team that I think is kind of like in that win now mode. They want to really kind of see what they got. You look at what they did this offseason in free agency and in the trade market, they're, they're gearing up for a run, right? So uh, with these early picks, my understanding was all right. Well, these guys are—they're going to come in, and they need to be able to contribute. I look at Rondell Moore; he's a great fit for that scheme. You know, when you look at Cliff Kingsbury, the way that they played uh, in the over the last couple of years, Rondell Moore's skill set fits perfectly. But then I just look at the other guy. There are, there are a lot of mouths to feed. Uh, in that offense and we'll see exactly uh, what the target share looks like. But uh, I'm interested to see what Rondell Moore, how many touches he ends up with. And I say touches because I think he'll be a factor in the run game as well. Uh, But how many touches he ends up with by season's end, there's just a lot of guys that have to touch the ball in that offense.
2: Well, yeah, and this is what the third receiver that they've drafted in the second round the last four years uh, because, you know, Christian Kirk in 18 and then Andy Isabella in 19, yep. uh, I believe there's a two second round picks. And then now with, uh, Rondell Moore. So, yep. you know, they, they want to find different ways to stress the defense. And with these guys that are super athletic that can, you know, catch and run, uh, ideally they're used out of the slot and, and you're going to give them little runways, uh, Rondale Moore. I, I love the fit that uh, you can already, you know, see the Murray to Moore connection, uh, you know, being a big part of what they want to do, but you know, you're right. And, you know, you've got, you bring in AJ green, who's going to play on the outside. Deandre Hopkins is going to play on the outside. And then you've got Christian Kirk, Isabella. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Keshawn Johnson's still there. So, you know, you've got a lot of wide receivers on that depth chart. And I thought it was interesting that they went receiver uh, early instead of like a running back because you know running back you know they they Chase Edmonds they feel comfortable being the the lead guy but I think it just it says they're not going to ignore the run game but they're going to use that short. A passing game as a, an extension of, uh, of the run game, you know, and the Rondell Moore is going to be a receiver, but could essentially be a running back with the way they use him, uh, with, you know, the quick hitting, uh, you know, passing attack of that offense. So it, it's just a really interesting dynamic with that receiving depth chart.
1: We've talked about Steve Kime and he's got a, a long history of drafting. So you know, the, since he's got that type, is there a player when you say, all right, we're going to connect the dots here. Who's a guy that you could have predicted before the draft would end up uh, wearing that Arizona red. Is there a guy that kind of fits that mold for you?
2: Well, obviously, Zayvon Collins, Uh, you know, we we touched on it. Uh, Just the hybrid nature, um, you know, might not be for everybody, might not be for every scheme. um, But, you know, Steve Kahn doesn't, doesn't really, you know, care about that. He doesn't care about how if he's a perfect fit. He cares more about the talent. And the potential impact. And sometimes that works. I mean, Buddha Baker obviously has been a huge hit where Hassan Reddick, uh, you know, didn't necessarily work uh until his final year. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, you know, he, he got paid for it, although albeit a one year deal with the Panthers. So, you know, you look at it and I think Marco Wilson on day three, I think he'd be another one that fits, uh, you know, inconsistent tape, but really athletic. You know, I, I think that kind of fits what they like to do. Um, Rondell Moore, I think is another one. So uh, I think the first three picks that the Cardinals made this year, very lockstep with what they usually do
1: closing thoughts on the Cardinals here. To me, this is a team I mentioned earlier. They're, they're clearly gearing up for a run, and they have said, actually said after the draft, that their first two pick, Collins and Moore, they have plans to play them as rookies. Like, they want them to make a year one impact. Honestly, that's why I felt like they were a sleeper team, Dane, that could draft a running back in round one. Like, if it was yeah. like, oh, like, who's a team that could that could shock us and take a running back early? I was like, uh, keep an eye on, like, Travis Etienne going to the, uh, to the Arizona Cardinals uh, in the top 20. Yeah, that was, like, one of my sleeper, like, kind of connect the dots, follow the breadcrumbs kind of selections, Um, but they end up not going that way, obviously. Uh, Any other kind of thoughts overall in terms of their overall draft strategy in this class?
2: Yeah, I was surprised how, you know, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, they did drive a running back at all. Um, yeah. You know, they bring in James Conner on a very cheap deal. Uh, you know, we knew watching James Conner last year with the Steelers, obviously, you know, he's uh, not starting material. He, he's not going to bring a lot of juice to your offense. Chase Edmonds has been a change of pace back for this team, and he's done well. I mean, last year he had over 50 catches. Um, but, you know, in terms of being a lead back, he's he's a little unproven. Um, so, you know, they're kind of it's just interesting that the way that they they're looking at their this running game right now and, you know, they're they're going with uh, uh, some. You know, lackluster options, um, you know, giving Chase Edmonds a chance. You have a bring in a veteran like Connor. Uh, but, you know, I, like I said before, I think they're trusting the the passing game to really in Kyler Murray's legs, obviously, to to be a big part of what they do or, you know, the central part of what they do. And this is you know, Cliff Kingsbury. He enters the season on the hot seat. So your your theory of what you're saying, the win now attitude, I, I certainly think that uh, that applies to this team.
1: I think their actions certainly show that, uh, yeah. and it'll be interesting to watch just how this year unfolds for them. Uh, let's go now to the San Francisco 49ers, one of the big teams to talk about in this draft. Right, They they trade up. They take Trey Lance on day one. Day two, they come away with three players. Aaron Banks, the powerful guard from Notre Dame. Trey Sermon, the running back from Ohio State. And then Michigan corner, Ambry Thomas. And then on day three, a handful of guys as well. Jalen Moore, the offensive tackle from Western Michigan. Oregon corner, Lenore, USC safety, Talanoa Hufanga, and then running back Elijah Mitchell to round it out from Louisiana. Uh, look, Dane, when we when the 49ers made that trade a couple of months ago to move up to number three, we did a segment here on the show. We talked about the pluses and minuses for all, every single one of those quarterbacks outside of Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. We talked about Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, what made sense, what didn't, me, you, and Ben, we sat here and we said, who makes the most sense And all three of us? Landed on Trey Lance, and we said you know, he just makes the most sense, even though they weren't at that first pro day, and even though they had never drafted an FCS player before uh, under John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan. To me, it just made so much sense. When you look at the way that Lance played uh, at North Dakota State, his overall skill set, when you trade up that level, of uh, that amount of assets to move up and take a guy, you want a guy that's got that, that superstar skill set. Trey Lance has it.
2: Everything about Trey Lance was unprecedented. Uh, You know, the 17 career starts, the, um, you know, being a redshirt sophomore, only 20 years old, uh, the production and being undefeated at the college level, uh, what he did as a freshman and then having one season uh, or one game as a sophomore. I mean, everything about it was unprecedented. And so, But I think you're right. I mean, when we talked about it, I did at the moment the trade was made, I did a top 10 mock draft on the athletic. Trey Lance was my pick at number three. Just everything about his skill set. You think about it with that Shanahan scheme. It made so much sense as being just the ideal fit. And I wish I would have you know stuck to that gut uh, reaction instead of believing all the Mac Jones stuff. Uh, but, you know, Trey Lance is who they wanted all along. And it, it's easy to see why when you look at his size, his ability, uh, the athleticism, the arm talent, his mind, the way his intelligence uh, translates to the field, uh, you know, and I can't wait to see him. I don't know how much we're going to see him this year. We're going to see him at some point, but uh, I can't wait to see him, uh, to see how he operates, how quickly, you know, how much do they put on his plate as a rookie? What do they ask him to do? Um, it's just going to be a really fun storyline to watch.
1: I do think, though, with him having taken the year off last year, that I don't know if you want him to take another year off. Like, do you really want him going two years without playing? Like, sure. uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how quickly he gets to the field. But we, we've talked a lot about Trey Lance over the course of the last few months and kind of projecting him to San Francisco. So I want to ask you uh, about some of these other players. And, and is there a guy, when you look at the rest of this class, that you feel is just walking in to the best path to early success, best fit, best situation in that position room?
2: I'm going to go with Trey Sermon. Now it's a crowded running back depth chart with uh, Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson. Um, they signed Wayne Gallman. um, Jermichael Hasty still hanging on, but in terms of fit, I, I think it's going to be really fun to see Sermon as part of that 49ers offense because of his vision, because of his body balance, um, his ability in the screen game. I think, I think uh, Sermon was the best screen receiver in the mm-hmm. draft and, you know, it was a little bit of a surprise to see him where he was drafted. The 49ers, uh, they generally ha- do not draft running backs high. He uh, was the first running back that the organization drafted top 100 since 2014. And Kyle Shannon has proven he could find runners on the open market to operate and be successful uh, in, in his scheme and what he does. Uh, but Sermon, I think he can really flourish uh, with his ability, uh, you know, the off tackle runs, uh, the screen game. Um, I, I'm really excited to see what he can bring to that offense.
1: Uh, to me, I think anytime you're talking about a new running back coming into that room, it's always like, all right, well, could this be the guy? Could this be the guy that and he's going to have games? I'm sure. Trey Sermon, where he is the guy in that offense. It's just such a uh, an interesting room when you look at all the other skill sets uh, that are in there in front of him at the moment. It's going to be uh, interesting to see how that all plays out. Um, and I'll stick with a, a similar kind of theme here. Who's a guy that plays the most snaps from this rookie class, and I, and I look at the guy that was drafted by the 49ers right after Trey Sermon. That's the corner, Ambry Thomas from Michigan. This is a player that they liked, they targeted. Uh, they were really high on him throughout the course of the process. Uh, and this uh, at that corner room, when you look at the, their depth chart right now, there's the there's a path to early playing time. And Look, as a third-round pick, maybe you don't want to necessarily count on him to be a, an every-game starter, um, but when you look, not only is, the, is it a little bit thin in terms of depth, but the guys that are in front of them, there's been injury history there. So uh, I do look at Ambry Thomas and say this is a guy that could see the field early and often for this 49ers defense. Is there any other guy that you feel uh, could also f- find his way into that boat?
2: Yeah, I'm with you with Ambry Thomas. I think that's a that's a great pick. Um, you know, a player that I, I think was a little bit off the radar just because he opted out. Um, you know, he was basically a one-year starter for Michigan, but he played really well. Uh, I think he's, in a lot of ways, a classic bump and run corner because he's Physically and mentally tough, Um, you know, I I like his instincts that he plays with. And, And like you said, the depth chart, the way it is, it wouldn't be a surprise at all to see him on the field early. Um, And then, you know, Aaron Banks, drafting him where they did, uh, you know, I don't, you you look at their guard situation right now, it's, you know, Lakin Tomlinson's been okay. And, you know, we'll see, you know, when Banks will be able to get on the field, but they drafted him pretty early for a reason. Um, So I think there's a good chance we're going to see him, uh, you know, pretty early as a rookie.
1: I wanted Banks to go to a run-oriented team, play-action-oriented team. I think that's a great fit for them. Uh, inside. He definitely could play early. Um, just overall, the you know, over the top thoughts here on the 49ers, I think one big trend, we talked about this in the past with them, athletic, highly competitive players. That's a, a really good uh, trend that you can see, and I think that that shows up uh, here with this group. But then also just a very senior ball heavy draft uh, strategy overall with them over the course of the the last few years under Lynch, under Shanahan. And this year is no different. Uh five of those picks on day two, day three, Aaron Banks, Trey Sermon, Ambry Thomas, uh Jalen Moore, and Elijah Mitchell, all of those guys got senior ball invites. Sermon couldn't go because of the injury, uh, but the other four were down there. So uh, I think that's just something to keep an eye on with the 49ers here moving forward through uh you know the rest of their drafts under this regime. Yeah,
2: that's a great point. And, and Sermon was actually down there. He just wasn't able to play. So all they right. were able to get some hands on um, time with him. Um, and, you know, I think it's also worth saying 49ers is pretty good at keeping secrets. Uh, you yeah, know, I'm sure they had a lot of fun with all the Mac Jones chatter. Um, no doubt. You know, they, they said Trey Lancer is a guy all along. Um, and I think it comes down to keeping the circle small. You know, there were only so many people that knew Trey Lance was the guy. And, uh, you know, they, the way it worked out, you know, just uh, yeah, credit to them for you know, no, no leaks and keeping everybody in, in suspense uh, leading up to the, the moment he was drafted. All right, so we've got one
1: final team, and they only have made three selections. This should be an easy one. Seattle Seahawks here, uh, no first-round pick due to the Jamal Adams trade. On day two, they come away with Western Michigan wide receiver Dwayne Eskridge. On day three, they come away with Oklahoma corner Trey Brown and Florida tackle Stone Forsythe. So uh, let's go to Dwayne Eskridge here, Uh, Dane, one of the stars of the week of of practice down at the Senior Bowl. Uh, Why do you feel like he was the, the selection there for them in round three?
2: Well, you know they uh, obviously have two really, really good receivers uh, already on the roster with, with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, and you're looking for maybe that third option who can operate, uh, you know, out of the slot, be you know, bring a lot of speed, uh, add a, just a different, uh, you know, dimension to what you want to do on offense. Hey, I mean, you look at Dwayne Eskridge, he offers a lot of that. I mean, he is a track star uh, on the football field, Um, and he can pull down the football. He's not, you know, you don't have to throw it perfectly to him. He can go up and get it. Um, You know, his his routes are a little uh, little bit of a work in progress, but he's a very gifted player. And I think he has the pass catching traits that... Um, are more natural than you would expect for a guy that was uh, so accomplished as a, as a track star in high school. So, um, there, there's a lot to like about what he did as a senior. He, the uh, Western Michigan only had six games this year, and he had uh, you know, he was productive in every single game. He had a catch of at least 47 yards in each game this year, so he was a big play uh, igniter. And the defense knew it was going to him, they still couldn't stop him. Um, and I know that was in the MAC. But he was able to keep that momentum going at the senior bowl. And, you know, I think it just became clear. This guy is a, you know, he's going to go somewhere in the top 75. A little surprising the Seahawks took him um, with their first pick. But, you know, you can understand why when uh, you look at that offense and, you know, what they were looking to add explosive elements to what they're doing. it, It makes some sense.
1: You know, when you look at the identity of this offense, the identity of this team. It's a, it's a coach that wants to be able to run the football, right? So run game, play action element. And it, may, it might seem cliche, but Dwayne Eskridge brings that defensive mentality to the receiver room. He's a really good blocker. He's a competitive player. And then when you look at the way that they play too, all those crossing routes, all the play action, the deep crossing stuff, right. I think Eskridge and his speed, I think it fits really, really well And the yards after catchability fits really, really well uh, in that offense. For me, uh, looking at the day three impact, of those two players, and I liked both. I liked Trey Brown. I liked Stone Forsyth. I just feel Trey Brown has an easier path to year one success. Um, also, interesting that they're starting to draft a little bit, you know, or, you know, acquire corners that are a little bit different in terms of uh, the physical profile, right? Not all these guys with 32 and a half inch long arms and six foot one plus. Hey, the, you know, Trey Brown, an undersized corner, uh, but he's got outside experience. He's got the ability to come in and play in the slot. Just hyper competitive, they're a very, very productive player as well. So uh Trey Brown, uh to me, I think has the the earliest slot to be able to play early on the, from the day three guys.
2: Yeah, you and I were both in that Trey Brown fan club, um, especially after the senior bowl. And seeing yeah. seeing what he did there. Uh he's just a guy that is uh he's not afraid to get physical, he's very aggressive. And what I loved about you know watching his tape is he made big plays when it mattered. You go to the Big 12 Championship game, the last three years, uh, he had a sack safety in 2018 against Texas. He had uh, three big pass breakups and a, and a chase down in 2019 against Baylor. And then he had a game-sealing interception against Iowa State this past year in the Big 12 Championship game. So he showed up when it mattered the most. A little undersized, uh, you know that aggressive nature works against him at times, but he has big time speed he's quick to recognize routes and understand what the offense is trying to do and he plays like that football is his he goes after it so he he's gonna see immediate reps as a nickel player and yeah i, I think he's he was one of my favorite day three picks this year
1: take us home with Stone forsyth uh here's a guy that i i was pretty high on it, it, remind us what you felt what you felt about Stone forsyth their final pick
2: I thought he was a top 100 player. Um, yeah. I had him at like uh, somewhere in the nineties um, on my overall board. Um, now he struggles in the run game. That, that is not his strength as a player. And so, um, you know, it, it's just kind of ironic that he would go to the Seahawks, um, you know, where he did yes, you know, following the way he did, but as a, in, the, in pass protection, he just, he has a natural feel for it. And he's so massive that he takes up a lot of room and he plays so wide uh, that he's able to to keep rushers at bay. Um, he doesn't move exceptionally quick, but he's not a slug either. I mean, he, he can move a little bit. He plays right tackle, played left tackle. So he's got experience at both spots. Um, you know, there, there's a lot to like about him. I was really surprised to see him fall as far as he did. I, I think he has starting potential in the NFL. So we've covered three of the teams in the NFC West. Let's wrap this show up here uh, with the final
1: team from the NFC West, and that is with the LA Rams. Let's do that now in the Blueprint. The Philadelphia Eagles are now on Google Home and Amazon Alexa devices. Want to hear Merrill Reese before the season gets underway? Simply say, hey, Google, talk to Philadelphia Eagles, or Alexa, open Philadelphia Eagles and enjoy. Learn more at PhiladelphiaEagles.com slash voice.
0: All 32 teams are always under construction. How are they being built? Let's check out the blueprint.
1: Well, like I said, we're going to talk about this LA Rams football team with Sosa Cremengis, the host of the Locked On Rams podcast. Sosa, thanks so much for joining us, man.
0: Absolutely, friend. Thanks for having me.
1: So going into this draft, and there was a, a lot of great reporting about the Rams and their their draft process, how they were taking on a, really a unique year going into this draft. And uh, just looking back, obviously, Les Snead has been there for a long time. And while their process has changed a little bit, were there any tr- uh, trends or things that you kind of had been keeping an eye on that you felt uh, could show up in this process, in this draft class?
0: Yeah. So the first thing I think that's been really prevalent under less need, at least since 2017, when Sean McVay took over as the head coach, is they love prioritizing like those older prospects for whatever reason. I don't know if they just like guys a little bit more mature or further along in that development curve, but they're always looking at guys that are a little bit older, you know, guys that are in that 23, maybe even 24 year old range. You look at guys like Van Jefferson just last season, the Rams drafted him. I believe he was 24 years old coming out. So Um, that is one thing and always looking at the senior bowl rosters is a very big thing for me as well you know back to 2017 uh, since they kind of took over together the Rams have drafted between two and four senior bowl players every season and so uh, they kind of continue that trend again a little bit on the lower end this past year only Robert Rochelle the corner in the fourth round and Ben Skoranek one of the receivers in the seventh round were the only senior bowl attendees there so that was a little bit low Um, I kind of expected it to be a little bit higher but I'm not really 100% sure how that one worked out. I figured, you know, they might actually want to be more incessant on looking at the Senior Bowl with maybe having a little bit less, um, you know, face to face meetings this past season with the whole COVID stuff. You yeah. probably would have relied a little bit more on the game tape type of stuff and obviously the Senior Bowl practices and things like that. So they dove into two of those guys. And then one more thing that they always kind of do, and I feel like they do this every season, is they like to look and not necessarily guys that are going to be contributors right from the get-go. And that's probably because they don't have first round picks and the Rams are a good team. You know, you're not talking about, uh, you know, a team that's picking the top five here. So your third round pick or fourth round pick is probably not going to walk in from day one and find these starting spot. So they like to find guys that are future starters, you know, replacements for guys that are entering contract seasons and guys that have very specific roles. And I think they did that. Once again, you look at, you know, just back back to last season, Um, every single season, it looks like they're going into these draft classes, taking a guy to try and replace someone entering a contract season. Last year, they draft two safeties, one in the third round, Terrell Burgess, one in the sixth round, Jordan Fuller, and, you know, John Johnson ultimately walks in free agency. And so you look back, you know, to this draft just past now, Bobby Brown, the D tackle in the fourth round, I think that one kind of makes sense. You know, Sebastian Joseph Day, one of their developing nose tackles entering a contract season. You look at cornerback, Robert Rochelle one of those prototypical boundary type of corners. He's very raw. So he's going to need to kind of take time to develop, but you look at Darius Williams, a cornerback entering his contract season. So he could be a starter in a year's time there. Jacob Harris, same thing. So I think they do a very good job of finding very specific guys to fill very specific roles that they need on the offensive or defensive side of the ball. And also that they do a very good job of kind of, you know, looking a year down the line and finding guys that They think they can develop in a year's time or two years time to take over for guys who are entering contract seasons.
1: And that's, what's interesting too, when you kind of juxtapose that thought with the idea of taking older players too, because you think, all right, you take older players. These are guys that can contribute uh, immediately. These are guys that, you know, maybe the development uh, isn't necessarily needed, but pairing that with, all right, we're not going to ask our guys to contribute day one. Uh, It is interesting that they kind of ride both ends of that fence.
0: It is, you know, because now you look at some of the downside too, because, You know, Van Jefferson is not really going to, how much running is is he going to get this year? You know, they still have Robert Woods. They still have Cooper Cup. They signed Deshaun Jackson to a pretty big deal for a guy who's only played in eight games. So clearly they have some, you know, ideas to actually get him some run too. How much, you know, playing time does that leave for a guy like Van Jefferson? And when you think about, you know, if he's kind of stashed again this year, not playing that much, and next year is finally his time, you're talking about a guy who's 25, 26 years old and entering, you know, the third season of his rookie deal. So you kind of lose out on a little bit of that, you know, positive stuff where you're paying them and they're cost controlled. But, you know, at the same time, that's just kind of how the Rams do it. And I think they've had a lot of success since 2017, finding the guys that they really like in terms of the skill sets. I think the coaching staff and the front office like have this very good link where, you know, the coaching staff is very clear in the roles and the skills that they want. And the front office does a very good job of addressing those needs.
1: Yeah, I think that that's always a really resounding theme on successful franchises is that, synergy between the scouting staff and the coaching staff. And, and when you look at the Rams, they certainly uh, bring that. Let's take a look at these draft picks. And you brought up a handful of these names already. No pick on day one, obviously, uh, due to the uh, due to the trades that they've made over the course of the last couple of years. We go to day two, you get Louisville wide receiver Tutu Atwell, South Carolina linebacker Ernest Jones. And then on day three, a handful of selections here, Texas A&M defensive tackle Bobby Brown, South or uh, Central Arkansas corner, Robert Rochelle. Tight end, Jacob Harris, the uh, ultra-high uh, upside tight end from UCF. Ernest Brown, the pass rusher from Northwestern. Maryland running back, Jake Funk. Notre Dame wide receiver, Ben Skarnik. And then Chris Garrett from Concordia, St. Paul. So a bunch of picks there on day three. And that has been one of the calling cards uh, for Les Snead for sure, has been relying on some of those day three selections, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, but let's get back to the top pick. Let's get back to Tutu Atwell in your mind why was he the selection why was he such a priority there uh just outside the top 50 for less need and for this rams coaching staff
0: yeah you know a lot of people question this pick and i understand why um the rams didn't really need a receiver they're already four deep they have arguably the deepest top 5 receiver group in you know the nfl now and you look at a guy like atwell and he's probably not going to get a ton of run on offense this season i would be shocked to see you know more than 10 snaps per game if that uh, but when you look at Sean McVay, and this has been a reoccurring theme all offseason, he's talked about just trying to get more explosive on offense and pretty much everything that they've said between he and Les Need and every move that they've made on the offensive side of the ball suggests that that rang true. You know, they trade Jared Goff for a quarterback in Matthew Stafford who likes to push the ball deep. He had, you know, the second highest Uh, average depth of target over the last few seasons, only behind Jameis Winston, who we know is also a very big gunslinger himself. So, you know, Matthew Stafford wants to push the ball deep. Then they go out and sign Deshaun Jackson, another vertical player. They go out and draft, like you said, Jacob Harris, one of those uber-athletic, you know, wide receiver to tight end converts now. And I think Atwell just does more of that. You look at a guy who can win downfield vertically. He's obviously got that incredible speed, runs a 4-3. And I think that they also envision a lot more kind of gadget style fun type of usage for him you know you think back to the Tavon Austin days with the rams i think there's gonna be a lot of jet sweeps a lot of decoy type of stuff a lot of jet motion whether that's him actually getting the ball or not um you look at you know potential wide receiver screens coming out of the backfield and just yesterday it sounded like you know in at wells press conference he suggested that it sounds like he's probably gonna return punts too and so If you're talking about an electric player, you want to try and get that guy, the ball as much as you can. And while those touches may be a little bit limited on the offensive side of the ball, at least this season, you talk about maybe getting five to seven touches in total, including those punter turns. That's obviously a good thing for a guy that has that house call ability anytime he touches the ball. And the Rams only signed Deshaun Jackson for a one-year contract. So, you know, he was a little bit lighter coming out of Cal a decade plus ago. One of those guys that had to be an outlier at the receiver spot. If there's anyone that can learn behind him, it's going to be Tutu Atwell, and that does afford him the, you know, one year of actually taking over that backup role and just kind of trying to learn. And then in a year's time, taking over for Deshaun Jackson when, you know, he may ultimately retire.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, they are not afraid to draft for a year out. So, you know, the the role that he can play in year two, year three might be different than what we see in year one. Uh, And still, he can offer uh, all the backfield action things that we know that is a big part of the Sean McVay offense. Uh, Some of those trends we talked about earlier at the top, uh, you mentioned some of them, you know, when you looked at the, the older prospects and, the, you know, maybe they, they didn't dip as much into the senior bowl class this year. Uh, Jordan Rodriguez from the Athletics did a, a great piece how they didn't put it, you know, they didn't travel down uh, to Mobile. And, and it's interesting coming out of that, that there was less emphasis on those senior bowl players and more so on the guys that were seniors. But kind of fell through the cracks. The the Jacob Harris's, the Ernest Browns, the Jake Funks, the, the Chris Garrett's guys that were seniors, but uh, you know, went to lower level all-star games. When you look at the, the rest of this class, were there any trends that uh, that kind of popped up from this year or that maybe just kind of went against the grain from what you've seen from them in the past?
0: Yeah, I think something that's a little bit different from the Rams this season was they typically don't draft those like super high upside type of players that you know, are more athletic, but need a lot more refinement. And when you look in day three, a lot of those picks kind of fell in that mold. Jacob Harris is a guy that we talked about, former receiver at UCF, but he may as well have been a tight end, but now he's going to have to, you know, transition to playing in line with a tight end with his hand in the dirt. Although that's still never going to be his best role. You're going to want him running as a big slot and things like that. But you talk about him as a developmental style of project, a guy that has all the God given talent and ability, um Robert Rochelle another guy that we mentioned a few minutes ago prototypical corner you know this is a guy that played wide receiver before you see it in the way that he attacks the ball he's got good size good length and a lot of the instincts there similar to like Darius Williams who's going to play the ball as opposed to the man but again a lot of the technique that kind of stuff needs to get cleaned up and so that's a little bit different compared to what they've done in the past I feel like they've always prioritize production over traits and you see that from guys like john johnson and the cooper cups and you know the gerald everett's and things like that where they like to really establish their core of their roster with these guys that they know are going to be productive and then you know so now it's been a little bit different kind of going in a different direction drafting a little bit more upside this season but um it's been very interesting to see for sure because i do think at the end of the day they still got a lot of guys that fit their mold of you know tough players that are gonna Things the right way for the most part. And maybe they don't have that superstar all pro upside, but they know what they're getting. And I feel like a lot of times they, you know, they put a lot of stock into just get knowing what they're getting as opposed to always shooting for that high upside.
1: Be sure to go check out Sosa on the locked on Rams podcast. Sosa, this has been awesome, really, really informative stuff. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand.
0: Absolutely. Always I appreciate you for having me. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag.
1: Well, awesome stuff there from Sosa, and you can go check him out, like I said, on the Locked on Rams podcast. We're going to wrap this up with Draft Mailbag, where we have a comment from you at home over on our Apple podcast page. That is from CardFan2018. So, uh, hope CardFan, hope you enjoyed this because uh, we were obviously hit on one of your favorite teams there uh, with the Cardinals. One of my favorite podcasts, thanks to Fran for being professional enough to learn the correct pronunciation of players' names. Well, I do appreciate uh, you noticing that, and that is a a big pet peeve for me. Uh, Look, we spend all year... Not criticizing, analyzing these players, right? We're going to say like what they do well, what they don't do well, what they need, where they need to improve. We're always honest with our evaluations. And if we're going to evaluate a guy on the field, the least we can do. Is learn how to pronounce the guy's name correctly. Right? I, that is like the, the minimum of what we can do. So that is a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, and so I'm always trying to put in effort to make sure that I pronounce a player's name correctly. Uh, and so I do appreciate uh, you noticing that. Thanks so much uh, for your support. And thanks so much to everybody out there for your continued support of this show. We're going to continue through our uh, 2021 recap next week. We're going to cover the NFC and AFC South. We'll have one more blueprint segment. And then we're going to keep this rolling. We've got a lot coming here on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. Stay tuned for our Journey segments as well if you're an Eagles fan. Even if you're not an Eagles fan, you might enjoy uh, what we've been doing looking back at all the times we've talked about uh, the Eagles draft picks here this year on the show and it gives you some insight into some of the segments we do year-round here on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. We'll talk to you next week. Introducing Season 2 of the Return Game Podcast, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood, presented by Novacare Rehabilitation. When it comes to the Eagles-Cowboys rivalry, you think you know the whole story, but there is more. So, so much more, and we're about to uncover it all. And I think back to some of my favorite memories in the rivalry, and I remember exactly where I was who I was with, what I was doing for so many of these games. Lito Shepard's interception to ruin T.O.'s return to Philly. I remember leaping off the couch in my house where I grew up and nearly punching the ceiling I jumped so high. The pickle juice game. I was actually on a family vacation in Disney World. We made sure we were back at our hotel so that we did not miss that game. 44-6. to 6, I remember I was watching that game from a bar near the mall where I was finishing up Christmas shopping. Earlier that day, I was with one of my best friends. Obviously, we couldn't miss the game. So we made sure we were geared up. We had a good spot in front of a big screen. We went through like 18 plates of appetizers that day. And I have these memories because these games meant so much and continue to mean so much to us as Eagles fans. So if you want to relish some of those great moments in the rivalry, be sure to go subscribe to Return Game and Eagles Entertainment Original Podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts.